The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticize. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host. Today's Thursday, so it's time for the weekly visit of our good friend Dr. Peter Hammond. I'm gonna bring him up right now. Peter, are you with me? Yes, I am. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And uh, Peter's presentation since the election and all these different things going on have become incredibly timely. The uh, title of today's one is The Real Story of How Elections Are Rigged and Votes Are Stolen. So where would you like to start us off today, Peter? Well, Andrew, you know, I've had uh, quite a few experiences being born in Africa, brought up in Rhodesia, I've lived through three revolutions and uh, been involved in eight wars, uh, worked in 38 countries. And so I can give quite a few examples of how elections are stolen and votes are rigged and the whole process is uh, uh, shocking. And they're often called free and fair or mostly free and fair by the US State Department, British Foreign Office, UN observers and so on. Uh, so. Uh, for example, if you just take when I was in Rhodesia, the elections back in 1980. Now, this was the Rhodesia into Zimbabwe elections under British supervision. Lord Soames, who was uh, the son-in-law of Winston Churchill, and Lord Soames sent there by Lord Carrington, who was proven to be a KGB agent of, of uh, influence, uh, but still... Lord Carrington, who's foreign secretary at the time, absolute, total, complete traitor, uh, betrayed Rhodesia in, in a horrific way. Well, the requirement was all forces had to be confined to barracks. Nobody's allowed to be getting out and making uh, any movements at all. So all military forces, Rhodesian army, police, the uh, terrorist forces, they all had to be confined to barracks, and only the British Army and British police were meant to be out there guaranteeing free and fair elections. Well, it's not very free and fair when one side's allowed to break all the rules, which, as we've mentioned before, ZANU PF of Robert Mugabe, the red Chinese-supported Marxist mass murderers, they blew up busloads and truckloads of supporters of the opposition party. They assassinated candidates. They murdered, they planted landmines, they hacked off people's ears, noses, and whatever. It's just hideous, hideous things. And although all these things were well-known, well-documented, proven, the British governor, Lord Soames, Soames, chose to not implement the requirements of Lancaster House Agreement 
and not discount the votes that came from the obviously fraudulent, intimidated, terrorist-ridden areas, which would have knocked ZANU-PF out of the operation. And so the, the ongoing mass murders and oppression in Zimbabwe to this day is just another example of how tolerating and allowing voter fraud in 1980 in Rhodesia, what became Zimbabwe, has continued to have catastrophic consequences and deadly results for millions of Zimbabweans ever since. Because when you allow people to come to power through fraud and terrorism, you encourage them to stay in power through fraud and terrorism. Well, I came across other examples uh, in Namibia, Southwest Africa, Namibia in 1990, after we had won the war, uh, the uh, South African government was foolish enough to hand over to the United Nations for free and fair elections. And so Southwest Africa and Namibia had their free and fair elections in 1990. And the Democratic Turnhiller Alliance, the DTA, which represented most of the uh, different tribes, races, nationalities, groups in uh, this very diverse and sparsely populated country of Southwest Africa. There was only about a million people in Southwest Africa at that time. And there were uh, 11 different language groups or tribal groups, ethno-linguistic people groups. Now, it so happened that uh, Swapo's support base was one of those tribes, the Avambo, which was not quite half of the total population. And so uh, it was expected that because of their terrorism and intimidation amongst the Avambos, that they might get the Avambos, but they probably wouldn't get much else. And in the elections in 1990, under United Nations supervision, there was a lot of terrorism uh, that preceded and intimidation and, of course, propaganda and economic sanctions and all these things on very much on the side of SWAPO, which the United Nations were pushing. Uh, but the South African army had won the war and the local people were very anti-communist and mostly Christian, 90 something percent Lutheran population, for example. And in the elections, the DTA, the Democratic Turner Alliance, which was pro-Western, Christian, anti-communist, was winning, winning across the board, landslide, against all the predictions of the polls. And it was just uh, sweeping the board, DTA, uh, Swapo was losing, and then there was a power failure, which was unusual because Southwest Africa didn't have power failures ever. And uh, we had our electricity coming from Ruakana hydroelectric power plant and a very stable electricity supply. And so this was very uh, unusual, this power failure. Nobody believes it was an accident. And uh, after the power failure, would you believe it, all the votes thereafter were for Swapo. And they ended up getting 57% of the votes. Now, nobody believed that was free and fair or accurate or honest. And there were even uh, discoveries after the uh, actual inauguration of the new government, which included Sam and Joma's Swapo terrorists, uh, as the majority party with 57%, uh, they discovered a container of unopened uh, votes, ballots, which had been cast. Now, they hadn't been counted. And the United Nations determined that these ballots were not to be opened and they were not to be counted. They were to be thrown to the incinerator because the results could unsettle the new government that they had just installed. And so they never even bothered, not even out of curiosity, to, to investigate what those votes were. So that was the so-called free and fair elections, according to the UN, in Southwest Africa, Namibia in 1990. Well, our turn South Africa came in 1994, April 1994, 
the big Mandela one man one vote uh, elections in South Africa, and uh, uh, all throughout there was, uh, in fact, a lot of opposition, a lot of opposition to ANC, especially amongst the Zulu. Uh, there'd been uh, massive fights where literally thousands of people had been uh, killed in in fights between the supporters of Inkata, the Zulu party, the Inkata Freedom Party of the Zulus, under Prince Mangasuda Budalesi, and uh, the ANC of Mandela. And uh, we're talking about fights where ultimately thousands of people were killed in the run-up to the elections in South Africa, uh, in what they called faction fighting, or black-on-black violence, is the way others put it. And uh, so this this election was, was very contentious. There was many groups uh, population groups that were very hostile to the communists and the ANC. And uh, therefore, we didn't expect to get a solid majority for any one party. There were a bewildering amount of political parties taking part in the election. And we expected to have what you get in most countries in Europe, which is a coalition government made up of many different parties, because no one party was expected to get a majority. South Africa has 13 different ethno-linguistic group, people groups in the country. Um, that's 13 different languages. And officially, we've got 11 official languages. You can imagine how awkward that is. So the the situation was quite extraordinary. Well, the so-called Independent Electoral Commission, the IEC, which was set up with the connivance of the ANC and the UN, it was not independent at all. And they were very inefficient. And after several days after the election, uh, the amount of results that had come out was so low that uh, there were newspapers that made the prediction that if present uh, trends continue, it'll be four years before we know the end results of this election, because they were just so slow and so inefficient, and we don't know what the problems were. There were jokes going around saying, how many IEC officials does it take to uh, change a light bulb? And the answer was, nobody knows. The light bulbs haven't arrived yet. And this was an ongoing joke. So, for example, all the voter uh, protections against voter fraud fell out uh, because uh, in areas which were key, uh, battleground areas, you could say, um, the required ultraviolet lights didn't arrive or the ink that you meant to put on the finger of the people who voted didn't arrive. And uh, so you can imagine uh, there was a lot of um, voting often and uh, early and often and frequently and so on. There's a lot of fraud documented, but uh, because the ink and the uh, infrared lights didn't arrive in most of the over 5,000 voting stations, well, obviously, we don't know how many people voted double there, but officially, 104% of the electorate in South Africa voted, 104%, which has got to be a world record, actually. I don't even think the communists got that right in Stalin's Russia to get over 104% of the electorate voting. There was... Uh, a lot of fraud. But in the end, contrary to what the newspapers and the history books say, most of the votes were never counted. The vast majority of the votes were never counted. They were running out of time. And they'd invited uh, dictators of the world to come and everyone from Saddam Hussein, Yasser Arafat, Gaddafi, you name it, uh, Mugabe, all the different, uh, Fidel Castro. So there was, you know, from Hillary Clinton, uh, who was the, the president's wife at the time, remember, 1994 was under Bill Clinton's uh, reign. There was all these people come to Nelson Mandela's inauguration 
and uh, yet nobody knew the results of the election yet. And so accord to the chairman of the IEC, the Independent Electoral Commission, so-called, they had to extrapolate the votes, uh, the percentages and the, and the votes, and do some horse trading to come out with the numbers. And the IEC admitted, although most newspapers chose to ignore that because it was an unpleasant truth, an inconvenient truth, if you like, that got in the way of the, the uh, myth and legend that was out there, you know, one man, one vote, every vote counts and so on. Well, they never even counted the vast majority of the votes because they just did some estimations, projections, uh, guesstimates and thumb sucking and then did some horse trading between the top parties and assigned out percentages. And uh, that's how they came to the end result. So the South African elections in 1994, not only did more people vote than were registered to vote, 104%, uh, but they also found after the election, after the inauguration of Nelson Mandela's present, containers of unopened ballots found abandoned, one outside the, near the airport in Cape Town and so on. And in each of these cases, again, it was determined by the IEC that rather than upset the published results, they didn't open, they didn't check, they didn't count the votes, they just incinerated them all. And that was South Africa's first free and fair elections of April 1994. And I wrote a review at the time called Fraud, Failure and Farce. And it was a fraud and there was tremendous failure, but I think it was deliberate failure in order to make sure they were not the safeguards that had been promised and estimated and required at most of the key polling stations where it was important. So maybe it wasn't a failure from their side, but if you wanted free and fair elections, it was a failure. And it was a farce because uh, this first free and fair elections and one man, one vote and first democratic elections and other kinds of uh, myth and legend propaganda out there bear no resemblance to what actually happened. So there we have our example of <laughs> the elections in uh, South Africa in 1994. Well, about the same time, Angola was having their first free and fair elections under United Nations uh, supervision. Now, the reason for this plethora of free and fair elections in Southern Africa is because in 1989, the Berlin Wall came down, the Iron Curtain collapsed, the Soviet Union disintegrated, the Cubans left Angola, the, the Cold War ended. And so all of this enabled elections to take place in the countries where the war ceased, because once the Soviet Union stopped sponsoring the wars in Mozambique, Angola, uh, all the way through Southwest Africa, South Africa, uh, basically, uh, peace broke out all over the moment the Soviet empire collapsed. And uh, that made possible the first uh, elections in all these countries, even Zambia, which at that stage was communist and where the elections actually went in direction of the anti-communist, which was a refreshing change. But in Angola, under the United Nations, they had what they called free and fair elections. Now, Angola has been an important mission of our mission since the early 1980s, and uh, we were heavily involved there at that time in particular. Now, the vice president of UNITA, whom I had breakfast with at the headquarters in Jumba, uh, Jonas Vimby is number two, uh, he was murdered during the free and fair elections in Luanda, the capital city of Angola. Uh, he was murdered execution style, bullet in the back of the head, in the presence of the United Nations peacekeepers who were guaranteeing his security during the elections. 10,000 supporters of the UNITA Freedom Fighters 
the the tribe that the the base of Umbundu people were murdered in and around the capital city of uh, Luanda in the three days leading up to the elections and encompassing elections, three days of elections. So the vice president of the opposition party gets killed. The uh, supporters get massacred. We don't have statistics from all over Angola, but we do have for Luanda at that time. And the irregularities were so great that just to hit some of the highlights, the UNITA Freedom Fighters, who is the anti-communist guerrillas who liberated something in the region of one third to a half of the total land surface of Angola from the Cuban-backed communists, uh, they were never given access to the voters' roll. They were never given uh, any access to the mass media because the mass media was controlled by the one-party dictatorship, the MPLA, the communist running the country of Angola. And so the, the communist dictatorship had a monopoly of the news media, radio, TV, and newspapers, which was all state-owned. And they didn't give the opposition, you need to freedom fighters, access to it either. So there was no free and fair access to, to mass media. And again, the, the opposition party had no access to the voters' role or any of the details. And they weren't able to have observers in many of the key places either where the elections were being cast. And they certainly didn't trust the United Nations as far as being a fair uh, broker, uh, unbiased observers to ensure free and fair elections either. So naturally, not uh, surprisingly, UNITA refused to accept the results of the elections. And the end result was that the communist uh, government was uh, announced as the winner of the elections and the United Nations and the US State Department described them as basically free and fair, I quote, basically free and fair elections. Can you imagine in your wildest nightmares that murdering 10,000 supporters in the vice president opposition party uh, could be considered basically free and fair? Absolutely insane. I mean, if that happened in Britain, would they call it a basically free and fair elections? It's like the news media describing the BLM and Antifa riots in America as uh, a peaceful protest or mostly peaceful protests, um, as you heard, or calling them protesters when they were plainly rioters, arsonists, looters, and so on. So the abuse of language, the newspeak uh, in the terms of George Orwell's 1904 is absolutely staggering. And would you believe that the United Nations placed international sanctions on the UNITA Freedom Fighter controlled free Angola. So half Angola was placed under economic sanctions for refusing to accept this obviously fraudulent, violent travesty of a so-called election in uh, 1994. And so our mission was smuggling Bibles and books and medicines into UNITA controlled Angola. And we were informed by UNITA at the time that we were the only group bringing them anything. They were blockaded for everything. That You couldn't send them uh, Bibles or bandages or medicines. And Doctors Without Borders were stopped from going there. Medicine Sans Frontiers, Red Cross, they, they weren't going. Nobody was going into Angola except Frontline Fellowship. And so in 1994, we were still smuggling in tons of Bibles, medicines, and other aid uh, to the uh, Freedom Fighter controlled areas. And during that time, by the end of that incredible year, 1994, one of our missionaries, Anthony Duncan, died in the service of Christ uh, our team had successfully smuggled in a ton of medicines into 
you need to control the area uh, to the capital Jumbo. Uh, and uh, that's in Kowanda, Kabango province, the uttermost parts of the earth, the Portuguese called it. And on the way out, the team was ambushed and uh, for breaching the United Nations blockade. Uh, the vehicle was destroyed and lost, and the team was arrested and put in prison. And I was on a mission to Zambia at that very time. 1994 is in our memory as, as the most disastrous month in our mission's history. We sent three vehicles into the field. Wrong. We sent four vehicles into the field, and only one vehicle came back, and that was the vehicle I was driving. Uh, we had uh, two terrible accidents. Uh, we had a fatality. We had an ambush. We had an imprisonment. Uh, it, it was a, a pretty catastrophic time, even though the team to Angola, which included Anthony Duncan, succeeded in smuggling in a ton of medicines into Angola. But on the way back, they were ambushed and arrested. And I was in Lusaka, the capital of Zambia, and uh, fortunately able to intercede uh, because I'd been locked up in Zambia back in 1987 uh, with the next government of, of Zambia and uh, people like General Godfrey Mianda, who had been locked up in the same cell as me, had uh, ended up as vice president of Zambia and had um, uh, campaigned uh, on our behalf. And so they were at that moment involved in a uh, negotiation process with the UNITA Freedom Fighters and the government of Angola in Lusaka, the capital of Z neighboring Zambia, uh, which the Zambian president was hosting. And so our friend General Godfrey Mounder got uh, pressure brought to bear through uh, President uh, Frederick Chaluba at that stage to inform the uh, communists to ensure that our team was released from prison or the negotiations was over. And uh, uh, so by God's grace, our team was released, but uh, we lost Anthony Duncan in, in that whole uh, uh, incredible, uh, disastrous uh, December 1994 as a direct result of UN policy and the horrific, um, violent uh, sham of an elections that took place in Angola in 94. So those are just some, some examples. And then we've got the phenomenal example of US manipulation in, for example, the elections in Nigeria. So in 2016, there was a very critical election that took place in Nigeria. And Nigeria is the largest nation in Africa, meaning it's got the largest amount of people, uh, something like 170 million people at that time, uh, 2016. And uh, in Nigeria at that time, they had the Boko Haram terrorist group, the jihadist group, who were doing horrific things. Just to give you an idea of how hot Nigeria was, now bear in mind Nigeria's got a northern uh, population that's mostly Muslim and a southern population that's mostly Christian. And they had a Christian president at that time, uh, good luck, Jonathan, and uh, the, he is heading up for re-election. Well, a major event took place, to, to let you know the background, just between 19, uh, 2010, just between 2010 and 2015, in that five-year period before this election, there'd been 1,000 churches attacked in northern Nigeria, with 17,000 Christians killed by Boko Haram alone. We're just talking about Boko Haram terrorism. 1,000 churches either firebombed, uh, arson attacked, or uh, suicide bombers, or uh, gunmen bursting in machine gunning congregations. 17,000 Christians killed in a five-year period in 1,000 churches in northern Nigeria. So that's the backdrop. Well, the Boko Haram had kidnapped several hundred girls, 
mostly Christian girls from a Christian area. And uh, there was outrage throughout Nigeria. And the Nigerian people were demanding, bring back our girls. And this became quite an international movement. And so the people were so frustrated at the government failing to deal with the Boko Haram terrorist attack. I mean, imagine that you go to church and you're not sure if you're going to survive or if your family's going to come back alive or intact or with all their limbs in place because of the spate of church attacks. I mean, just imagine a thousand churches attacked in a five-year period in one country. And so uh, the uh, uh, you started to see posters, and I've got pictures of these, of the people holding up signs of uh, bring back the girls or we will not vote and no return, no votes. And so there was a whole campaign of millions of Christians in North Nigeria saying to the government, if you don't uh, bring back the girls and end this threat to our uh, population, uh, we won't vote in the next election. Well, incredibly, uh, they had the lowest voter turnout ever. Uh, over, uh, it was just under 43% of the electorate turned out to vote, which was unprecedentedly low. And the Muslim candidate, Mohamedou Bahari, who has some links to the terrorist group and some sympathies with him, he won in a highly contested election. And the, the election marked the first time an incumbent president had ever lost a re-election in Nigeria. In this case, good luck, Jonathan, who is, who is a, a, a Christian. It was also the first time that a previous military dictator had won an election after being ousted. Mohamedou Bahari had actually been a military dictator, took power in a revolution, and was forced out later. And he had the audacity to stand up for re-election, and he was elected. How? Well, a U.S. congressman, Steve Stockman, reported that he was a member of the U.S. congressional delegation sent to Nigeria after the kidnapping of hundreds of schoolgirls to Boko Haram. And he testified that a senior United States general had informed them that the U.S. military had intelligence, real-time intelligence, that could have aided the Nigerian military to crush Boko Haram, the terrorist group, but they were blocked from providing this information to the Nigerian authorities by the Obama administration. They had real uh, signal intelligence intel uh, through satellite technology and so on of the location of those schoolgirls. And they could have provided this information to the Nigerian military and could have been critical in ensuring the return of the, the girls that had been kidnapped and decapitating, to use their terms, of the leadership of Boko Haram terrorist threat in Nigeria. But they were blocked by the Obama White House, which, of course, included Biden, who was vice president at that stage. And the reason given was that the U.S. administration, the White House administration, we're talking about uh, uh, Obama and Biden, had refused permission for the military to give any uh, information that could help the U.S. military because the Nigerian government had a pro-life policy and were not supporting the gay marriage uh, push of the U.S. administration under Obama. And so because of a perverted agenda, this destabilized Nigeria, and it, it was having such far-reaching uh, effects of U.S. foreign policy, the Nigerians expressed their frustration to me that American interference and blind promotion of perversion sabotaged their attempts to free the kidnapped girls from Boko Haram that undermined the Nigerian military's attempts to defeat the 
Islamic jihadists of Boko Haram, and it brought about a catastrophic return to law by a Muslim, who used to be a military dictator in Nigeria, to the largest nation, Africa, Nigeria. So the, the interference of, of false elections or manipulated elections or sabotaged elections, as we've seen in Rhodesia, as we saw what today is Zimbabwe, as we saw in Southwest Africa, which became Namibia, or in South Africa in 94, or Angola under UN in 94, or what happened in Nigeria in 2016. These are just some examples of how elections are rigged, manipulated, and votes are stolen. But here's another recent example, and uh, this is in Austria. Now, my wife comes from Austria, and my sister-in-law and quite a few family members live in Austria. And so uh, I'm aware that on the 22nd of May, 2016, presidential elections were held in Austria, which resulted in the Freedom Party of Austria, the FPO, bringing a 152-page appeal to the Constitutional Court. And the case claimed that over half a million ballots were invalid. Non-citizens and minors had been allowed to vote, and irregularities, particularly with absentee mail-in ballots, significantly altered in the outcome. So the Freedom Party presidential candidate, Norbert Hoffer of the Freedom Party, he had lost to the socialist, Van der Bellen, by a mere 30,000 votes. And the court found that more than twice that number had been affected by breaches in the electoral code. And so the Constitutional Court of Austria ordered that the presidential election's second round needed to be held again. And they said it is completely clear to the Constitutional Court that laws regulating an election must be rigorously applied. This must rule out all abuse and manipulation. So there's no doubt in my experience that election fraud and mail-in ballots and United Nations controlled free and fair elections, they can be manipulated, they can be stolen. And I'm reminded of a quote from Franklin Delano Roosevelt. FDR said, there are no accidents in politics. If something happens in politics, you can be sure it was planned that way. And so uh, with the present extraordinarily widespread, systematic voter fraud and mail-in ballot irregularities, uh, which are being documented throughout the United States of America, uh, this is completely consistent with the pattern that we've seen around the world. Because remember, the secular humanists, those who deny God and who deny the Bible, they deny the Ten Commandments, they deny God's law, uh, they believe in situation ethics. You know, after all, they evolutionists, they uh, antinomians, they are, are existentialists. Nothing matters in about history or eternity. Uh, who cares about the Bible or law or right or justice? The important thing is the end justifies the means. So from a secular humanist or socialist, atheistic, Marxist point of view, the end justifies the means. And so they can justify lying, stealing, fraud, deception, no problem, because they believe that their end is a good end, uh, a socialist, globalist agenda, and therefore they can justify any amount of deceit and theft and fraud because they're convinced that what they are doing is for the greater good, uh, as they would like to say it. And so it's not surprising that you're seeing so much voter fraud in America because, as uh, has been observed, the policy of the classroom in one generation becomes the policy of government in the next generation. And so the United States of America has, uh, and Europe has been heavily compromised and undermined in its security 
by an educational system that has taught you came from nothing, you're going nowhere, and life is meaningless. And a teaching evolutionism and situation ethics and the Big Bang Theory, they have separated one's personal daily life and even politics from uh, ethics and from law and from the Ten Commands and the fact that we need to face a holy God one day on the Day of Judgment. And so there's a lot of people who seem to have no conscience problems whatsoever about fraud, lying, deception, whether you're talking about the media, whether you're talking about the voting situation. And this is this is pretty serious and catastrophic. We, we've got so many documented cases of voter fraud that uh, let me just uh, end my part here with this uh, one example of voter fraud documented in America. The New York Post this year, 29 August 2020, published Confessions of a Voter Fraud. I was a master at fixing mail-in ballots. This article is written by John Levine, published August 2020. In it, he quotes a whistleblower who describes himself as a political insider, a Bernie Sanders Democrat diehard. And he said there's no electoral race in New Jersey from city council to United States Senate that we have not worked on. And this operative declared that voter fraud with mail-in ballots is not a myth. He knows this because he's been doing it on a grand scale for years, for decades. And the whistleblower, whose identity and rap sheet and long history of working as a consultant to various political campaigns was confirmed by the Post, they claimed that not only was he changing ballots himself, but he led teams of fraudsters and mentored at least 20 operatives in New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania. So this whistleblower and his operatives said they found out they went from house to house convincing voters to let the mail completed ballots on their behalf as a public service. They would then take the sealed envelopes, which is the main security, home, and they'd hold them over boiling water to loosen the glue, remove the real ballot, place the counterfeit ballot inside the signed certificate, and reseal the envelope. And he report that sometimes postal employees were in on the scam and filled out ballots which came from Republican strongholds, which just thrown in the garbage. For example, the New York Post uh, reported that in 2017, hundreds of mail-in ballots in New York City were discovered, never to have been delivered to the Board of Elections in the 2016 elections, because these baskets of mail were just put to one side at the Brooklyn Processing Facility until election was over, by which time they were invalid. Mail-in fraudsters particularly, he said, targeted assisted living facilities, old age homes, by helping the elderly to fill up their absentee ballots. And nursing homes, he said, are a goldmine for votes, as are the inactive voters or the deceased voters. And he said Democrats would often also routinely buy votes from the homeless shelters, literally paying people to register and vote the way they dictated. He said it was actually quite cheap to, to get those votes. So organizationally, this whistleblower said that their voter fraud systems and schemes resembled mafia organizations, with a campaign manager controlling the fraudsters who had quotas as to how many voter details to harvest and uh, to stuff ballot boxes. He noted that normally the actual candidate would be kept in the dark so that he could maintain possible deniability. And various states in the United States this year sent out an unprecedented 80 million unsolicited ballots to voters in the mail in 2020. And the most bizarre things have happened. People who died long ago got ballots and voted, interestingly. And uh, when it comes to unjustly influencing elections, uh, you can just see the uh, track record of the Democrats has been hideous. 
And uh, we're talking about from FDR uh, all the way uh, through to Clinton and Obama. Uh, it's absolutely disastrous and catastrophic. We cannot expect a free and fair result when you've got so much fraud. And we haven't even spoken about the media censorship uh, where you've got these fraudsters uh, literally um, deleting whole platforms and you've got these so-called uh, Snopes uh, uh, putting on posts that you put. It doesn't matter if it's from experts, bacteriologists, virologists, scientists, uh, frontline doctors, uh, historians who've spent a lifetime researching things. You just get these fake groups uh, who call themselves fact checkers claiming it's false. But in fact, uh, these fact checkers are actually flat fact blockers, they fact censors, they fact deniers, they fact selectors, they fact manipulators. We should just call them censors because uh, how can somebody who's anonymous for that matter, anonymous fact checker, some of the thought police of uh, Zuckerberg and so on, who suddenly say a post that you might have uploaded seconds before and they suddenly have this, you know, fake news or, or not true or our fact checks found us inaccurate or it's lacking important context. Uh, how can they tell so quickly? And uh, uh, what gives them the right anyway? And then the uh, distortion in the mass media and the involvement of big tech and manipulating perceptions is also important. But notice the polls, the so-called uh, polls where they say, oh, you know, this is predicted. Remember 2016, Hillary was 98% guaranteed to win the election and uh, Trump didn't even have a 2% chance of winning. And it's, it turns out that these polls are all inaccurate. It's not just there. Almost anywhere I've found it in South Africa too. Uh, and in Rhodesia, whatever polls are put out by the media, it bears no resemblance to reality. It's basically psychological warfare where they seek to discourage opposition and they seek to encourage uh, their side uh, by producing polls that are heavily swayed. It's, it's thumb-sucking imaginative uh, but it's it's these predictions that they've got a landslide victory for Hillary in 2016 and landslide victory uh, for Biden in uh, 2020. It's not that these were based on polls. These polls were manipulated or maybe even totally fabricated. But we can certainly see that the polls are there as part of the psychological warfare, discourage opposition uh, to their globalist agenda and encourage uh, those who support it. But what we now have is fake history, fake news, fake education, fake pandemics, fake entertainment, fake experts, fake votes and fake elections. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you very much, Peter. And um, one thing that makes me laugh is these so-called voting machines. And we've been hearing a lot of stories about these. The whole idea that you could trust some software that could quite easily just be manipulated to what the uh, controllers want the vote to be. There's not, nothing physical that needs to be counted. And that's something that's come out. And um, what I find interesting, he talks about the media. Um, this is the latest article uh, concerning Trump on the BBC went up five hours ago. Trump fires election security official who contradicted him. And then you go down to the third paragraph, and this is what they've been coming out with since day one. Mr. Trump has refused to concede the US election and has made unsubstantiated claims of massive voter fraud. And they keep saying it's all unsubstantiated, blah, blah, blah. What they've 
decided to do in the media is they've done the fraud and now they keep trying to get everyone to recognise Biden. The media will tell you who won the US election, not the uh, vote counters uh, or any sort of, um, you know, uh, appeals against uh, what, what has taken place. And it's very difficult to know how it's going to really come to pass because I'm sure many of you listening out there listen to other shows as I do. And you get some people that say, you know, Biden's got it now. And you get other people that talk about Sidney Powell, you know, Trump's leading lawyer and she's going to go to the courts and it's all going to be overturned and it's going to be Trump. And I really don't know which way it's going to go because I'll tell you, it's going to go with whoever the controllers want in there. And if they did suddenly put Trump in there, it would cause a hell of a lot more violence on the streets than had he won on the day because the uh, Antifa have been relishing the prospect of Trump being kicked out of the White House and having their own Joe Biden in there instead. And you can imagine the rage that these people will go into based upon previous actions if suddenly they're told, no, Trump's going to be in for another four years. He won the election on an appeal in the courts. So either way, I think that they're going to get what they want. Uh, before I hand back to you, Peter... And I'm going to hand back to you with a question. I'm very pleased that you raised uh, these so-called fact-checkers. I actually used this as an image for a show recently that I did. You're aware... Well, let me just read this to you. This is a Snopes mostly false fact-check. What's true? Microsoft published a patent for a cryptocurrency system using body activity data. This patent is filed under the number... W O two zero two zero zero six zero six zero six A one. Then they say what's false? The number W O two zero two zero zero six zero six A one contains three sixes, but it's obviously not the same as six six six. I mean it, it, to actually even have to bring this up, and I did with Paul English, I've mentioned it a few times on the show, because it's so egregious. Uh, I shouldn't have to say that uh, having zeros in the middle of the sixes is like nothing. A zero means nothing. If I was going to give you zero of something, I'm giving you nothing. Uh, you're a Christian minister. Uh, how do you uh, react to this, Peter? Oh, <laughs> George Orwellian thought police. Honestly, to think that they're sitting there uh, looking over your shoulder every time you make a comment or put a post and uh, they're trying to tell you, well, honestly, <coughs> why is it that they haven't been able to get rid of pornography off the internet? Why is it that they can't deal with illegal trafficking or um, the grooming of uh, girls for sex traffickers online? But they can harass people over opinions, facts, science, uh, all the way through to election results. What gives these people the right? What makes them so qualified that they can contradict scientists, medical doctors and professors, that they can uh, contradict historians, all these different issues? Are they so wide in their, uh, so omniscient and all-knowing in their background that they're literally able to check facts on issues that how would they know? And uh, obviously they don't know. And it is just because it's going against the politically correct. So we should treat uh, Snopes and all these fact checkers as fake. They are part of the fake news, but there are censors there. We shouldn't use the word fact checkers, although in a sense, Satan was the first fact checker because he questioned what God said in the garden. 
But I'd call them continually fact deniers, fact blockers, fact censors, fact selectors, facts manipulators, uh, or thought police. And so maybe whenever you've got to refer to them, you always put in a, a word that exposes what they are. They are thought police. They are censors. They are fact deniers. And oh, why would I want some uh, so-called expert out there to tell me? Now, I know these experts. In the 70s, I was brought up with uh, ice ages coming. We're all going to freeze to death. They're going to be ice skating at the equator. And, uh, you know, we're heading into a global freeze. That was the, the big fear in the 70s. Uh, now we've had, uh, for the last 20 odd years, uh, global warming, global warming. In fact, Al Gore said that there wouldn't be any ice at the North or South Pole by 2013. Of course, remember, the world was going to be finished by 2012 anyway. Uh, but every city in the world that is close to the ocean will be underwater uh, and, and finished uh, because uh, by 2013 because of all ice caps melting, because of global warming. And continually, whether it's overpopulation, there's not going to be enough food, we're going to run out of oxygen, we've got too much uh, of this, we've got too little of that, uh, you've got the ozone layer, you're all going to get uh, skin cancer. And on and on, the government presents a crisis and they sell fear so that they can present themselves as the savior. And I see this as tying in completely with what the Bible warns us about. Revelation 13 is warning us about any attempt to produce a one world government, a one world economic system, and a one world interfaith religious system. So one world religion, one world government, one world economy. And uh, there is going to be an attempt to mark people. Uh, and it's not just a mark. I think there's many marks of the beast. And over the same ways, it was required in the Roman Empire that uh, you had to burn incense to the idol of Nero, to a statue of Nero, before you could buy and sell in the marketplace. And people would often take the ash from uh, the incense they'd burnt and rub it on their forehead or on their wrist to show that they had uh, done the required uh, offering. Otherwise, they wouldn't be allowed to buy or sell. Uh, Muhammad required people to leave some dirt on their forehead to show that they'd bowed their heads to Mecca before they were allowed to buy and sell in the marketplace. During the French Revolution, you had to wear the tree color, uh, the, the, the three colored uh, red, white, and blue, indicating you for the revolutionaries, or you couldn't buy or sell, and so on. They, now it's you've got to wear a mask or, or get a microchip. And, so there's many ways people get the mark. Uh, there was a time when you had to show your allegiance to the Bolshevik Revolution, you have a red scarf or a red uh, band around your arm and so on. So over and over you can see the beast wants people to conform, to submit, to... Uh, if you want to be part of this world system, remember you're allying yourself with what Revelation 13 warns us about. One world religion, one world economic system, one world uh, monetary system or economy. Uh, this is bad. We don't want to be part of that which is in rebellion to God. Globalism is the biggest threat, and we need to be resisting it. And I'm sorry to say that these so-called fact-checkers are a key part of the thought police who are promoting the George Orwellian warn warning of the Newspeak, uh, where uh, Big Brother's watching. And honestly, we can see it can people not see this is warned about, not just by George Orwell 1948 in his book 1984, which is prophetic in many ways, uh, but by the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 13. So we should check out Revelation 13 and we should be concerned, very concerned. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And yes, uh, it's interesting, funnily enough, because um, 
Uh, Peter's been very helpful in advising me different books to read because I've never looked at the... We did a show a while ago on different uh, English literature um, and I've been looking at Oliver Twist by Dickens. I've never read a proper Dickens book. I had one, a nice set of abridged children's uh, classic books, A Bridge for Children, uh, when I was younger and I used to like reading them but it was um, too much for me to get the proper version and now I'm looking at them. But recently I decided to have another look at 1984 and I'm really not sure... Because I read most of Orwell's books, but I don't know if I have actually read 1984. Because I think a lot of people they know the story, so they don't read the book. Because oh, it's going to be this totalitarian system, blah blah blah. But it's quite interesting what I picked up so far. Because uh, I'm only about a few pages in, you know, probably about a tenth of the book in. But essentially, this Winston Smith character, the the sort of lead character who works for this Ministry of Truth, he's one of his jobs is if the party says that they're going to do something in the media and it doesn't happen, then he goes back to the story and he re-edits it uh, to show that uh, something different they predicted that actually became the outcome and then destroys the original story. And then the way they destroy the original story is they throw it in a bin called the memory hole. And, of course, we hear about things being memory hold. And I wasn't aware of so many of the little terms that we see today that link back to things. Of course, as uh, Peter said, you're talking 1948. Uh, you know, no one was really envisaging an Internet. So his um, uh, interpretation would be you go into newspaper archives and change stories. So if someone went to them afterwards and said, look, the government promised they'd do this. And they say, no, no. No, they didn't. It's not there. This is what they promised, and this is what they delivered. Uh, and it's astonishing the way that um, that uh, it, it can be applied today. So I'll give you some more information on that the more that I read. Um, but anyway, Peter, we've got um, still got a few minutes left, three, four minutes left. Would you like to comment on uh, 1984, your opinions of the book, and, uh, and anything else you yes. can tell us about the ministry? Yes, so... Uh, I, I think it's so, so brilliant, uh, the insights. Uh, George always spoke about mini-truth. So the Ministry of Truth was called mini-truth, and they dealt with lies and censorship. And the Ministry of Plenty, uh, mini-plen, uh, they dealt with shortages, starvation, and rationing. And the Ministry of Love, uh, mini-love, uh, they dealt with torture. And the Ministry of Peace, they dealt with war. And uh, all of this was called Newspeak and Doublethink. And uh, a person who was uh, um, in some way not wanted anymore, they uh, unpersoned him. They, they became an unperson. They disappeared down the memory hole. So, uh, or they vaporized him is another term. And so uh, this fits into our days of being deplatformed and deleted and unfriended and unpersoned and all of this thing. Well, what an extraordinary insight. But of course, George Orwell wasn't prophetic in the sense of being a spiritual prophet, but he had been a policeman. He had been a newspaper journalist. He had worked for the BBC as a propagandist during the Second World War, and he'd been a communist, and he'd actually visited Stalin's Russia. So he'd actually seen how this works. And so what he's doing was he is warning us of what he already saw the trends of. But what foresight and what a brilliant way of, of looking at it. So I encourage people, read Animal Farm, read 1984, and if you can't see those all around us right now, then we're really not paying attention. So if you are wanting to uh, learn more from us and our ministry, our perspective based in Africa and Cape Town, uh, Frontline Fellowship, my website's www.frontlinemissionsa.org. 
frontlinemissionsa.org. I've written on some of these things and our experiences in the wars in Africa, helping persecute churches. And I've been in their prisons, I've been under their interrogations, and so I'm aware at how the communists work. And I think in some ways South Africa's a, uh, what do we call them, uh, the canary in the coal mine, uh, where we are experiencing so many things that the West's going into and in many ways, we can warn you as to how the Marxists work and how we can resist revolution, uh, because we've been living through this sort of thing here already. And I'm afraid the revolution's moving into your territory. So in many ways, we can help against our common enemies. If anyone wants to contact me directly, my personal email is peter at frontline.org.za. Thank you. Thank you so much, Peter. And uh, folks, uh, what Peter said, he talked about 1948, this book was written. And uh, you look at what happened after the end of the Second World War, the uh, so-called allies always say, oh, you know, Hitler started the Second World War by invading Poland. Well, he went in there to protect uh, Germans living in Poland who were being persecuted. Uh, Isn't it funny that uh, at the end of the war, the allies had no qualms about letting Poland be taken over by Russia. So they were happy for Russia to occupy it, but they weren't happy for Germany to occupy it. So the whole thing, as you can see, was a great big farce from start to finish. And of course, that is what all well witnessed, this swathe of communism going across Europe. I want to thank Peter so much for joining me again today. We'll be back at the same time next Thursday. I want to thank all of you for listening. I will, of course, be back with you all tomorrow. Until then, folks, have a wonderful day. And bye for now.